Welcome to the Orange County Catholic Radio Show. Each week, we bring you compelling conversation with church leaders and laity, talking about the things going on in our diocese and discussing the important issues that impact the world around us. We're coming to you from our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. Here now to introduce our guest and today's topic is your host, Rick Howick. And welcome to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and today we're going to be trying something just a little bit different. I had been speaking at a Knights of Columbus meeting And we were discussing, actually, the Old Testament prophets. And what came out was the pro-life aspects of that. And I had a number of the Knights ask me about not only the pro-life aspects of the Old Testament, but some of the issues surrounding Proposition 1. And so today what we're going to do is kind of shift gears a little, and we're going to talk a little about um, the pro-life aspects of Scripture, and where we are as a culture, and how we as Catholics should approach Proposition 1. Before we go any further, I'd like to begin very much with a brief word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord, God of all humanity, who created the world for your love to come into it, for all of us as people, and for you as one of us, God in human form, we thank you today for the gift of life, and we ask you to empower us through divine love for all children, those who are in the womb and those who are out. We ask you to be with every woman who is called to be a mother, that they would find your deep love for their baby to be one of the great joys of their lives. Dear Mary, we ask you to guard each one of these children and to express your prayers and loves for them. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I was a young man married to my wife and she was expecting our first baby, I was actually out speaking then too and I was called to come home because her contractions had gone to seven minutes apart and I was actually about 35 miles away. So I got in the car and came home. By the time I got home, they had jumped from seven to three minutes apart and so we threw the little suitcase into the car And off we went. Uh, We were living in Hemet at the time, and we were heading down to Sharp Hospital, which is in Menifee. Not Menifee. It's in um, near Temecula. Anyway, it's a long drive. And as we were going along Domenagoni, which is an expressway, I had to be going at least 70 miles an hour when I saw ahead of me the silhouette of what could only be a, a police car. I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to slow down. And then I had an idea. And she's going into another contraction, and she's these contractions are now coming, oh, less than three minutes apart. So I pulled up behind the police car, and I flashed my lights, and I pulled him over. And he then turned on his lights, and, and I pulled over, and he kind of he slowed down and went behind me. And then I looked out the window, and as he's walking up, kind of sauntering with this look like, what are you doing pulling me over? He looks in the window, just as he's about to say something, he hears my wife go into another contraction. And he looks at her, and you could tell that the blood just left his face. And I said, we're running between two and three minutes apart. Can Can you help? Follow me. So he got in his police car, turned on his lights, and zoomed out. We followed him behind, and we went then down. We turned off of Dominagoni, went down Winchester Road until we got to where the intersection was for the hospital. And then he waved on his way out, and we drove in. And I've never forgotten how thankful I was that he was willing to help us with our child. The story doesn't quite end there because the pregnancy, the, the delivery was not going well. When we were in the delivery room, every time 
my wife would have a contraction, the baby's vital signs would go nuts. And as it turned out, her umbilical cord was apparently wrapped over the top of her head. So as she was presenting in the womb, every time there was a contraction, there was the danger that it could actually kill the child. So we not only entered prayer, we also pulled in um, to the surgery room and we had to deliver the child to the emergency cesarean section. And we were so thankful when the baby came out and I held the baby in my arms as they were ready to cut the cord. And I gave thanks to God at that point for giving us a delivery of a child who was so wanted and so loved and yet the danger that that, that presented. I say all this because for us, this was a story of great joy and happiness, and we desperately wanted to see our child come to fruition. For people who experience an unwanted pregnancy, uh, it's very rarely a happy thing. And the solution to that has always been that if someone has a pregnancy that they, they don't want, that they give the child up for adoption. That was always what was done uh, in society. It was the only option that was legally available up until recently. And in our generation, the rarity of abortion, and I say our generation, I'm an older man. So in my generation, the concept of being able to kill the child in your womb in order to solve the problem of not having planned the baby that was such a foreign idea and a new idea that it would be done so readily. But it has become such a commonplace action here in the state of California that we now have our governor out putting up billboards throughout different states to drum up business for California. And these billboards not only target uh, states that have laws since the downfall of Roe versus Wade that in states where the abortions have been curtailed. But he's gone so far as to put up billboards that quote the scriptures in defense of the aborting of a baby, including the quoting of Mark chapter 12, verse 31, where he quotes it as, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. And the implication is that what you're loving is a woman who wants to kill her child. And that, of course, is not anywhere close to where the context of that comes from. In fact, the commandment just before that was to love God above all else and your neighbor as yourself. But this is where our society has gone, and it it sets up a, a powerful, powerful challenge. Politics is something that... Um, the church has always tried to stay out of historically uh, since the beginning of our of our republic. Now, that's not true from the deep history of the church, but uh, especially in the 20th century when the Johnson Amendment took place, the churches were not supposed to talk about uh, which political party to vote for, nor are churches supposed to talk about which political candidate amongst the parties to vote for. And if you'll notice, the Catholic Church does not advocate a political party, nor does it ever advocate for an individual amongst the candidates. But what it's free to do and what the Johnson Amendment allows and what sometimes frustrates people, but it's it's something that is always there, it is allowed to talk about any issue. And that includes, and it becomes especially important, when the issues are being brought up for voting. So, for example, in the state of California a few years back, there was a movement for same-sex marriage to be allowed, and an amendment, I believe it was Prop 22, came along, and the Catholic Church advocated against that because, from a Catholic perspective, a secular attempt to marry between two people of the same gender is not considered eligible as a sacramental marriage. So the church got involved with that political event because it was a moral issue. And the moral issue uh, from the Catholic Church perspective was very clear and remains clear today. We now acknowledge that we have people in the state of California who are legally married by the state laws. 
And for all of our institutions, like the Catholic schools, uh, they recognize that these people are legally married. And if they want access to student records, it's the same as someone who's sacramentally married. But as far as the church is concerned, it's not the same as a sacramental marriage because the morality issue hasn't changed. Well, that's the same for abortion. And the church is involved in this issue because of all the rights that are out there. The most fundamental begin with the right to live. We see this, for example, in our founding documents. It is, uh, to, to me, of great interest, and I remember talking to Father Spitzer about this on the air a few months back, that the first three principles that are God-given rights are to have the right to life, the right to liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that these are given to us by God himself. And that that right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness isn't addressed in the Constitution, not because they aren't recognized, but on the contrary, because they are presumed. The idea that the rest of the rights are somehow equal is is preposterous. They're given through the state, the rest of them. So when we start with the First Amendment, what you can say and what you can't say is regulated by the government. So that we've decided as a people that you have a right to say what you want on religion or to say what you want in the press or to say what you want about the, the political or governmental people involved in running our lives. And we've decided that's so important. It's the First Amendment, but it's still an amendment given by the people because there are restrictions on it. You, you cannot go, we say, into a crowded theater and yell fire because it would start a stampede and cause people to be hurt and injured. So we have regulated that speech. We have said that you cannot say something that you know to be false against someone's character because to do that is to damage them. And so we have libel laws and slander laws so that you can't do that because those are rules that are given by the people of the United States, whether it's the right to bear arms or it's the the quartering of soldiers or whatever it might be. Those rights that are in the Bill of Rights are given in order to have uh, a better society, and we as Americans love them. But the first three that were that were given in the original Declaration of Independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that when we talk about the right to life, it, it should be shocking to people, and I think it would be if we had the Founding Fathers come back and take a look around that somehow this idea of a right to life is challenged. But that is something that has happened. And so the church has a right and a duty to stand up and talk about why the right to live is so important and why when when laws come around that are unjust and are actually threatening to kill or enhance the killing of people, then the church must speak out against it. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick. And today we're talking a little bit about the background to the pro-life stance of the church. We're going to talk about it through scripture. When we come back, we're going to go a little more into the background of what Prop 1 is all about. I'm Rick Howick, and we will be right back. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. And today we're doing something different. And so from here on out, uh, if you have little children that are listening, we're obviously going to be talking about, or we have been talking about, the abortion issue. And it might be something that if you've got little ears around that they might be protected from. Uh, There might be some, there will be some discussion that is going to be difficult for some people to hear. Exercise your judgment with your children, please. In 2019, Pete Buttigieg, um, who's now Transportation Secretary, but prior to that, he came out and criticized religious Christians for invoking a, quote, doctrine of abortion, unquote. 
that the Bible is not in and of itself pro-life the way we think about it, but that prior to birth, before taking that first breath, that there is no inherent life inside the womb. And it raises an interesting question, because we are aware that in Judaism, in the Judaism especially uh, from 2,000 years ago, which is my forte where I'm looking at religious history from the Roman era, there was an understanding that your your nephesh, your life breath, uh, is the symbol of the life that's in you, just as it was a clay body that was made for Adam, and it didn't become alive until God breathed the breath of life into Adam, and he received his nephesh, he received his life breath. But that doesn't necessarily mean that is the only way that we experience the gift of life in Scripture. And in fact, what Mr. Buttigieg brought up was a very interesting question as, what does the the Scriptures say about life? Before we go any further, I want to make sure that I've uh, explained why it is that I was asked to talk about this a little bit. And it's really quite simple. My background is as a Presbyterian trained for ministry. I have three master's degrees. Two of them are in religion. One of them in divinity from the seminary where I finished all of the seminary requirements for ordination as a Presbyterian minister and was working on a a second master's at the time in early church history when I discovered that the entire early church was Catholic, which kind of, as I like to say, ruined my career as a Presbyterian minister to become Catholic. Uh, I, I'm currently finishing up a Ph.D. In, in religious history, and I've done quite a bit of reflecting, not as a priest, but as a layperson who has children and as a father and someone who is engaged in the secular world, but yet I'm familiar with this material. So that when I'm looking at what the church talks about, it goes, for me, to my experience, both in education academically, but also from a Catholic lay perspective. I am a married man. I am not the paragon of virtue. I have had problems in my world and my life. Our marriage is, uh, like most marriages, it has been with its blemishes. But I love my wife. We are have been married for 27 years, and we are engaged in a great love affair with our children. We love them, they love us, and we are quite thankful to God because of that. In fact, I remember the story that I told earlier on was, for us, a a poignant way of encapsulating how it is we feel about life. We have children that have some special needs. We have children that had made us ask the deep questions about, Lord, why do we suffer in this world? Why do we have issues and problems and things? But in the end, it comes down to what we choose. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, talks about the two paths that are put before us, one of life and one of death. And we are instructed to choose life that you and your offspring may live. We are formed in our mother's wombs. And as a human being, that formation is completed in our mother's wombs. If we look at Job chapter 31, starting in um, verse 14 or so, what then shall I do when God rises up, when he makes inquiry? What shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? And did not that one fashion us in the womb? The point that is being raised is that in the womb, we are already fashioned to be one with God. We already have identity. From a, a an Old Testament perspective, um, Psalm 139, verses 13 and 15 For you did form my inward parts. You did knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately wrought in the depths of the earth. Jeremiah 1.5, when Jeremiah is talking about his call to be a prophet, 
hear this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Which means, if we're looking at this, I mean, Isaiah 49, 1-5 talks about it again. That the prophet is called from before the womb to be a prophet. And it is from inside the womb that we are knit together so that we become who we are. For God, it says, when we are in the womb, we are already who we are to be. We are in infancy form. We are in embryonic form. But we are still a created human being by the will of God. And he's called us from the moment that's there. You know, the, the most famous passage that has to do with this idea that the identity of a person is given by God from the moment of conception is found actually pretty well in not only the Old Testament, but in the famous encounter between Mary and Elizabeth and Luke, where Mary is now with child, and she goes to visit her cousin, who is further along with child. And as she walks in through the door, Mary's presence with Jesus inside her womb is recognized not just by Elizabeth, but Elizabeth says to Mary that the baby inside of her leaped with joy at the sound of Mary's voice, and he recognized the coming and the presence of Jesus as Messiah. So that the very first recognition of Jesus Christ was done by an a baby in the womb, pre-born. So when we're looking at how the Old Testament and how the New Testament sees the creation of life, life doesn't just come at the moment you take your first breath. God created us from the moment that we were conceived and had already thought through prior to our existence who and what we would be as we learn from the prophets who who testify that they had been called from before the womb, and as we see John the Baptist testifying from within the womb that the life of Jesus is present in Mary and is the Messiah, and not only is the first disciple of Jesus in the womb through John, but Jesus himself is first recognized prior to birth. No one can say that when God creates life, somehow it only takes important form at the moment it takes its first breath to cry out. We have life before. We have life in the womb. We have calling from within the womb. Billy Graham once said that the Bible makes it clear that God sees the unborn infant not as a piece of superfluous biological tissue, but as a person created by him. And that's really the point, is that our society, in walking away from God, has walked away as well from the intentionality of God being present in the creative process. And that every child is a wanted child by God. Not every situation is good. And there are some very bad situations that are out there. But the solution cannot be that we can say that a human being who is small, who is without the ability to defend itself, who is without the ability to to stop any kind of an action against it, that that human being who was called by God, created by God, has personality. You can't tell me that jumping in the womb inside of of Elizabeth was not a recognition of, of personality, the true sense of personhood that somehow killing that baby is the solution to the problems of the world. It just cannot be. That's been recognized in our church. We know that people who have been advocating for abortion, who claim that somehow you can separate the issue as a political issue from the morality of a Catholic, where we are under the law, thou shalt not kill, that you can somehow separate that is ridiculous. And all the bishops understand that you can't do that. 
not all of the bishops know what necessarily they want to do about it for politicians in their realm. But we know, for example, that Archbishop Cordelione here in California issued his letter publicly to Speaker Pelosi. And he said that she should not present herself for Holy Communion in accordance with Canon 915 of the Code of Canon Law. And he said this because, quote, the grave evil she is perpetrating and the scandal she is causing and the danger to her own soul she is risking, that that constitutes a need for us to take a stand. Because to to advocate for the death of any human being, that would be wrong. And if these children inside the wombs of their mothers are human beings, then to advocate for their death is morally wrong from a Catholic perspective and wrong in any way you look at it from a secular perspective. If Archbishop Cordelione has correctly pointed out that people who advocate such things are risking their soul, for the rest of us who do nothing about it, even if it's as simple as simply voting, for the rest of us, are we not also risking our souls as well in the process? I think we have an obligation to do what we can in order to safeguard uh, the life that is in our in our midst. All right, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about what our society is doing and how it compares to the society of the Old Testament, and particularly about the concept of really child sacrifice and a God called Moloch. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. And today we are talking about the biblical background to the pro-life movement, especially in light of the upcoming issue of Prop 1. And we will be right back. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio, coming to you high atop the tower of open, beautiful Garden Grove, California, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. I'm Rick Howick, your host. Today, we're doing something a little different, and we are discussing the biblical background for the Catholic position that all life is sacred, including the life in the womb. And we're doing this directly because the issue of whether or not we should extend and expand the abortion rights in California has come up in Proposition 1. And as we said earlier, under the Johnson Amendment, churches are are allowed to talk about any issue that comes up, uh, whether it's a voting issue or a non-voting issue. Uh, We do not advocate parties and we do not advocate individuals for office, but we can and we do talk about the issues. And in this case, one of the most important issues is here in Prop 1. What Proposition 1 will do, and we'll talk about this in the last section of today's show, but what Prop 1 will essentially do is take the rules of abortion in California, which already are are quite liberal, and extends them and makes them permanently open all the way up to the last moment of the ninth month where the baby could be presenting for birth and can still be killed. That's what Prop 1 allows. So the church has spoken out against it. But why is the church so concerned about what society does? Uh, there are some who would say that the church should simply stand by. If you're Catholic, then, then don't have an abortion, but don't tell anyone else what to do. And this is a very important issue because God is the God of life. As we said before, God puts before us two ways, one of life, one of death. And we're asked to choose life that would go well for us and for our children. What does that mean? When God said, thou shalt not kill, it's on his top ten because it is so very important. It is, in fact, when you talk about not killing and respecting life, we're talking about the ultimate image of who God is in our world. God is our life. So if we're talking about why it is that God, for example, allowed for the northern tribes of Israel to be destroyed, we come right back to the life issue. Let me acquaint you with what that was all about. Back in the days of Saul and then David, you had a united kingdom of all the tribes of Israel. And after David died, his son Solomon took over, and Solomon was considered a wise guy, but 
the way they understood wisdom was a bit different than ours. He was kind of a wise guy, like a like someone from from the uh, Cosa Nostra might be wise. He was able to to control, but when he died, the control kind of fell apart, and the southern tribes of essentially Judah was the most important one. They broke away from the northern tribes, the ten tribes in the north which formed what they called the kingdom of Israel, and in the south they called it the kingdom of Judah. The reason why we have Jews today is because the northern tribes were conquered and they were dispersed. Uh, We're told where they go. Uh, Unlike what some religions will say, that they came to the Americas, they didn't. They were dispersed to other parts of of the empire, what eventually becomes the Persian Empire, but the Assyrian Empire. And it goes out toward Persia, which is where a lot of them were sent to to media for the, amongst the Medes. But why did this happen? Well, the Old Testament tells us their interpretation of why God allowed this to happen. And since we Catholics believe there's inspiration in Scripture, we should pay heed to this. Here's what it says in Second Kings chapter 17, starting roughly in verse 5. And then we're going to take in parts that go off a little bit from there, too. Verse 5, then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. For three years he besieged it. Let me stop here. Samaria, you've heard of the Samaritan, is another word for, another term for the land that is made up of the tribes of Israel. So the kingdom of Israel and Samaria are here equated. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He carried the Israelites away to Assyria. He placed them in Halah on the Hebar the river of Gosan, and in the cities of the Medes. That's not far from Persia. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They had worshipped other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had introduced. They rejected all the commandments of the Lord, their God, and made for themselves cast images of calves. They made a sacred pole, worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served Baal. They made their sons and their daughters pass through fire. What is that? We'll come back to it. They used divination and augury, and they sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah alone. That's what the scripture says. What is this having your children pass through the fire? Well, it actually is what it sounds like. And this is where, again, I will remind our our parents who are listening with children nearby that they should exercise their parental judgment. We are going to talk graphically here. Human sacrifice was forbidden by God. We have it in Scripture. We know that Jephthah, who was one of the judges in the book of Judges, uh, when he won a particular battle, he promised to God that he would sacrifice anything or anyone that came the first thing he saw when he got to his, his property. And unfortunately, the first thing he saw was his daughter. And a month later, he sacrificed her. We know that Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac, but was prevented from doing so by God, who actually hates the idea of sacrifice, but was not only testing Abraham, but demonstrating the sacrifice that would be necessary for the great evil that humankind has done. What has humankind done? Humankind has shed blood. Now, we know that we have uh, human sacrifice in a number of different places in Scripture, so I'll just read off a couple of them. Not only do we have it forbidden in Leviticus 18.21 and 20 verse 2 and Deuteronomy 18.10, but we have evidence of it in Isaiah 57 verse 5, Ezekiel 16.2, Ezekiel 20.31. We know that Psalms 106.37 uh, talks about it again. It's in the people around there. We know that the Semitic culture allowed this to the Baals and particularly one form of them named Moloch. We know that their culture spread this. We have evidence of there being child sacrifice, for example, in Carthage. Carthage is the city and at one time 
the greatest empire in the Mediterranean as Rome was growing up, and eventually goes into battle with Rome and is destroyed. But they had child sacrifice there as well. What is this passing through fire thing? The god Moloch was a god to offer your children to, and he consisted of a statue that was then heated to a a horrendous temperature, and then children were placed in it to be burned. It is debated as to whether or not uh, they were killed beforehand. But understand that the idea was that you would sacrifice your children. We have the evidence for it uh, in Carthage, for example. We have found the tombs of the in a place called the Tophets of these, these sacrificed children. There is some debate as to what some of this means, but the bottom line, as far as the scripture was concerned, it was forbidden, and it was the culture and society that allowed it that enraged God. And what we saw was that in the northern kingdom, that enraged God, and it was the reason for its destruction. So it raises an interesting question for us. What are we doing? How do we see our embrace of abortion, which is a child's death, and it's sacrificed to a god? What kind of a god? Well, virtually all abortions are done not for medical health reasons, but for personal reasons. Very few are done for medical health reasons. Uh, and, and that's something, if you want to check that out, you can go to several different right-to-life groups, and they will give you the documents on that. But it's 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 a very, very, very small percentage. So the majority, by far, are done for what purpose? Well, one of really a couple of reasons. One being that it's going to stand in the way of a woman being able to have freedom, to not have a child. And that she, now that she's pregnant, chooses not to continue the pregnancy in order to preserve uh, what her life would have been without a child. So is this something that uh, is has to do with a resume? Does it have to do with only being able to get ahead? Well, no, not necessarily. You also have fear. Fear it used to be in several cultures that to be pregnant was something that was a great embarrassment to the family. It overwhelmingly is not so much in the United States anymore, but that used to be a major factor. But the bottom line was the choice to have sexual intercourse opens up the possibility of pregnancy, and that's where the choice really is made. I'm pro-choice that way. I believe that you should have a choice as to whether or not you have sex or don't have sex. I don't recommend having sex before marriage because in marriage you're now prepared to have a child And as we found out with my wife and I, you desperately want to have a healthy child delivered. And your greatest hope and joy is that that child will be healthy and be delivered. But for us, when we look at what causes the drive for abortion, what we see overwhelmingly is that the choice has to do with the rights of the life of this child versus the desires of someone else. And that puts the child on an altar and is sacrificed on behalf of the person who wants to have their life go on as if the baby didn't exist. But the child does exist. And as we saw, that life was called from before it was created. And just as Jeremiah and Isaiah and John the Baptist and Jesus himself were already fully who they were in the womb, so too is everyone who is in the womb. And every life that is taken through abortion is taking a complete human life. Now, there's a lot of debate about when does life begin? And we were talking about how we believe that it begins at the moment that God creates an embryo in our in our bodies. But what does that say scientifically? Well, what we're talking about then is the moment of fertilization. Can science therefore tell us when life begins? No, absolutely not. Life is both a combination of um, the belief in God and his creative power, as well as the thumbprint of God in the world, which is science, that God's activity in the world we see in science. But can we measure, can we address certain aspects of that? Well, absolutely. 
There is a, a PhD student who's ABD, meaning all but dissertation, named Stephen Jacobs, and he is in the University of Chicago. He conducted research back um, about 2014 where he asked thousands of biology scholars, so biologists and and instructors of the type throughout the universities throughout the world. And 90% of those biology scholars believe that the development of a mammalian organism, a mammal, begins at fertilization. And more than three-quarters of them believe that fertilization, therefore, marks the beginning of human life. And the majority of those were pro-choice, very pro-choice, when they marked down who they were and what they were. So science, while it doesn't necessarily determine when life is, certainly recognizes that from a scientific perspective, a human life begins at fertilization, which means that if we believe that a human being starts in its most primitive form at fertilization, why aren't we protecting it? When we come back... We're going to talk a little bit about what's happening in Prop 1 and why this really is about expanding abortion to make it even a greater danger than before and why, by voting no, we really aren't doing anything but keeping the status quo what it is today and not expanding it. We'll talk about that when we come back. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. Today we are talking about the biblical background for the pro-life movement. And in fact, we had just gone through some of the important considerations from the Old Testament, why it is that God's judgment fell upon the ancient kingdom of Israel, and that that had to do with its embrace of a culture of death for their youngest children, and that we ourselves need to take into account that where we can make a difference, we need to make a difference. And from a Catholic perspective, the belief that we can just sit around and do nothing is insidious. It is no different than what happened in the era of Moloch uh, in the time of ancient Israel. There is a movement out right now about uh, an image that's being used in the different parishes. And I know that in some of the other dioceses in Southern California, it's become quite popular. It's called the Burning Bush Movement. And interestingly, it's actually uh, a, a way of trying to invoke the image of the burning bush that spoke to Moses. It was God through the burning bush, of course, speaking to Moses and calling him to action. And it was being used in order to to draw attention to the voice of creation. And that created some controversy for some people because, of course, there is no real voice of creation. There's only the voice of God in creation. And this image was put out there in a number of different parishes without a whole lot of catechesis. And I know of one parish in particular where it was placed on one of the altars that used to be used prior to Vatican II, for conducting mass, almost as if this burning bush was a, a fourth member of the Trinity. There was one parishioner who wanted to tear it down like they did to the Pachimama uh, idol that was that was in Rome. There was an incident back a couple of years ago when South Americans were allowed to bring one of their representations for a god, and it was displayed inside a church sanctuary in Rome. And finally, one of the parishioners that had enough went in, took the statue, took it outside, and threw it in the Tiber River. They threw Pachimama into the Tiber. And that was what was being invoked by this person, saying it's time to take Pachimama down and throw him in the Tiber. Well, my feeling is that the idea of the burning bush is a very important image to be used. And it is to be used for taking care of creation. It's to be used for taking care of all human beings. And in fact, it is a reminder that just as Moses was called by God from the burning bush to serve and to proclaim, so too are we. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31, tells the story of the sheep and the goats. And the story of the sheep and the goats is an image that Jesus gives about the last 
judgment. And it is a sobering reminder of how we will be judged and what the final exam question is. So it goes something like this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, he will gather all the nations together and he will divide them just as a shepherd will would divide the sheep from the goats. The sheep he will put on his right and the goats will put on his left. Then he will turn to the sheep and say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick or in prison, you visited me. And these will turn to him and say, Lord, when? When did we see you when you were hungry or thirsty or sick or in prison and take care of these needs? And Jesus says to these people, the, the, the sheep, truly, truly, I say to you, when you did it to the least of these, and remember, all human beings are gathered there, the least of these, all human beings are gathered there. That includes the human beings inside the womb. They're fully human beings. We, we established that. When you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. Come and inherit your rest. Then he will turn to the goats, and he'll say, Depart from me into the eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't even prepared for them. It was prepared for the devil and his angels, but they're going there too. Why? For when I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. When I was thirsty, nothing to drink. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was sick or in prison, I rotted there. And they will say to him, Lord, Lord, when did we see you with any problems and not minister to your needs? And he will say to them, truly, truly, I say to you, when you failed to do it for the least of these, you didn't do it unto me. And these will go off to eternal darkness, but the righteous to eternal life. And the only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to the scripture, is what they did or didn't do for the least of these. The unborn children amongst us the ones who are silent and hidden in the wombs of their mothers are the least of our society. They are the ones that call out to us. The ones who are aborted are the blood on the ground from our brother who has been slain. And it is the least of these who are in need for us today. Let's talk a little bit about what Prop 1 does. A no vote on Proposition 1 keeps existing California law on abortion the way it is now. That's right. If you vote no on Proposition 1, you are not ending anything in California. You're not stopping any current law. You're not abrogating any abortion in California that currently exists. You're keeping it the way it is. Proposition 1 would expand it. Now, recent polling shows that there is much common ground among voters in California on this abortion issue. So those of you who are listening to this broadcast or podcast, please remember that most voters oppose taxpayer-funded abortions and support reasonable limits on late-term abortions. In fact, a full 70% of California voters believe human life begins at the viability or conception. So when... You're talking to other people. You yourself should know what your faith teaches you, what your scripture teaches you, what your church teaches you. Our church very clearly teaches that abortion is wrong. The scriptures explain why. The history shows how God is angry at those who kill the innocent. And our fellow Californians do not believe that we should have late-term abortions. So when you're talking to other people, keep that in mind. Most Californians oppose taxpayer-funded abortions. And with California taxpayers already facing soaring inflation, sky-high gas prices, and unaffordable housing, most voters oppose taxpayer funding for abortions, especially if it's to pay the expenses for abortion seekers from other states. And we know that Gavin Newsom has been recruiting those with billboards that are up, including the use of the Gospel of Mark and some of his billboards. The legislature has already increased abortion funding by $200 million this year. You hear that right, $200 million. Already increased. If Proposition 1 passes, analysts predict that the number of abortion seekers from other states coming to California could increase by tens of thousands, meaning millions more dollars will be needed. So if 
we're looking at it from just a practical perspective. This is fiscal lunacy. Number three, most California voters believe in reproductive equity. Most California voters believe there should be parity and equal access to services for women seeking abortions and those who choose to be mothers. We should at least allow for those who want to be mothers to have access as well. Prop 1 gives top funding priority to abortion seekers at the expense of families who struggle to pay for housing, groceries, gas, safe neighborhoods, health care, and, of course, child care. So when we're talking about Proposition 1, we're talking about the constitutionalizing, making it a part of the Constitution, abortion up to the very last moment of life in the womb, and allowing that to not be able to be taken away ever. Do we really want California to become the capital of killing nine-month children in the womb of their mothers? That's what Prop 1 does, and it's why we're speaking out on it. And it's why I was asked to talk about it today from a Catholic perspective, from a, a family man's perspective, from the perspective of someone who's been in the seat for seven years, uh, interviewing many, many people on this and many other topics of Catholic faith. My last word on this really comes down to what Jesus said, that we should indeed love God above all else and love our neighbor as ourselves. And as we have learned, the child in the womb of the mother beside you is indeed that neighbor, and is the least of these for whom we will be accountable. You have been listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. And today we have been talking about the very difficult subject of Proposition 1 in California and the biblical background as to why uh, it should be opposed from a Catholic perspective. And... I hope that you will share this with someone else. If you like the broadcast, please feel free to download its podcast. That will be available at OCCatholic.com. At OCCatholic.com, you go to the radio tab and you will find about eight different shows that we produce, including this, our flagship show. And that will allow you to share any of this information with anybody else, especially before the election on Proposition 1. On behalf of all of us here at Orange County Catholic Radio, I thank you for listening. I ask you please to vote no on Proposition 1 and help save the least of these. And we will see you again next week.